You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name's Tom and I lead the team here at Hope Church. And we've been going through a series of messages in the book of Luke in the New Testament. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 today. Uh, Before we turn there, I wonder if you've ever come across the marshmallow test. It's a psychological test which is designed to test restraint in the face of temptation. And uh, we're going to watch a video now uh, which will uh, show this. Basically, the the children in this video have been told that um, they can have another marshmallow if they don't eat the marshmallow that's put in front of them. If they can wait for 15 minutes, then they will have another marshmallow. Okay, so we're going to roll the video now and see what happens. So show of hands time. Who would have given the marshmallow a little lick just to kind of see what it tastes like? Anyone? Who would have given it a little nibble? Anyone? Just get away with just a tiny nibble. Who would have put it under the plate to stop them being tempted? Who would have done that? And who would have eaten the marshmallow straight away? You greedy people. This is relevant to today's message because today we're looking at temptation. We are all tempted to gratify our short-term desires and in the process, foregoing a longer-term benefit or blessing. All of us are tempted in this way. And we are looking at a story today where Jesus is tempted. He's come from a time of honor and great glory when he gets baptized and the Father says over him, I love you, son. I'm really pleased with you. And then he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he has a time of testing. You might be in a great place right now where you feel kind of, Yeah, strong in God, as it were, but you're only one step away from being tested in a very serious way. We need to note before we get into this story that Jesus is tested. He's tempted for a period of 40 days. Sometimes we can misread this story and think that Jesus was maybe only tested three times at the end of a long period of loneliness, but actually he's tested throughout that time. It was an almighty struggle. So let's turn to Luke chapter 4. And verses 1 to 13, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the, the verses will come up on the screens around the room. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up and lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. 
I'm going to pull out five things from this story. And the first of those things is this. This enemy is your enemy. And you might be visiting today. It might be your first time in church. And already your worst fears may be confirmed. Man, these people believe in the existence of the devil. They believe in the existence of a spiritual realm. And you might be thinking, I've come to one of these fear-based churches where they're all about getting you to be scared of the devil, to do kind of the things they want you to do. Listen, I want to... Uh, lay this out from the outset. I feel compelled to say this. The devil is real. Satan is real. He exists and he's at work in the world today. And some of you, you will have resistance to that point. You might think, come on, we're in 2020. We should be done with all this medieval nonsense. It's completely unhelpful. Thankfully, I'm not that foolish. And if that's you, if you're saying that, let me suggest that you might already be deceived. You might already have been lied to and have been in some way defeated. Because a great... A ploy of the enemy in any warfare is to convince the opposition that they are not there. If any of you have seen 1917, one of the best films of recent years, in my opinion, the whole plot of that film is that the Allies are led to believe that the Germans have retreated, that they've run away. And what happens, actually is happening is that the Germans have simply fallen back to a better defensive position whereby they can slaughter the Allies. And the devil's uh, tactic is to somehow convince, particularly us in the Western world, that he does not exist and that the spiritual realm does not exist. And you might be thinking, yeah, he's, that's right. The spiritual realm does not exist. We can't be talking about all this nonsense. Well, over half of the world's population would be convinced of the fact that there is a spiritual realm. And maybe it's time to consider that in the West, we may not have all of the answers that we think we have that actually we're not as uh, civilized and as knowledgeable as we think we are, because indeed there is this spiritual realm. There is evil in the world. I know it's hard for us to take, but us in the West, we do not have all of the answers. There is an enemy. The adversary, his name is Satan. He's the father of lies. He works through pride and he lies to people and he gets them to believe that they are too smart to believe in him. And that lie gets believed. There's an evil enemy called Satan. He hates Jesus. He hates all that is good in the world. He hates all those who love Jesus. And Satan tempted the first man. His name was Adam. He tempted him into disobeying God. He did it through distorting the words of God. And he tries again in this story and he fails because the second Adam, that is Jesus, he resists. Now, we back up a little bit into the end of chapter 3. You'll notice that between the story of Jesus' baptism and the story of Jesus' temptation, there's this family tree in the way, the family tree of Jesus. And you might think, Luke, what on earth are you doing putting a family tree right in the middle of your biography of Jesus? Matthew, who writes one of the other Gospels, he puts the family tree right at the beginning. He puts it right at the beginning, which makes sense, right? It makes sense to have it right at the outset. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. He traces Jesus' Uh, line right back to Abraham, who was, the, who was a big deal for the Jewish people. And he's showing them that Jesus is a legitimate Jew. He's the promised Messiah. He's the guy that is coming to uh, bring an end to all of their suffering and bring them into a glorious future. That is what Matthew's trying to do. Well, Luke, he puts it right here in between Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation. And he traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam. He's doing this to show us a glorious parallel and a glorious comparison between Jesus and Adam. He's showing us that Jesus, the true son of God, resisted. Where Adam, the son of God, in some ways he had no parents, he failed. Jesus, the eternal son of God, stood firm in the face of the enemy. 
The devil thought he'd simply come along to this man, Jesus, as he had done to Adam and all of Adam's descendants. And he thought he could just lie to him, manipulate the truth, and lure him into sin. And that's exactly what he tries with you and I. As he hates Jesus, so he hates all those who are in Jesus. That's what, this is a very short description of a Christian, someone who is in Jesus, who's in Christ. The Bible uses that phrase again and again to describe those who have been wrapped up in Jesus. They've put their faith in him, they've trusted in him, and now they're, they're wrapped up in Jesus, adopted into God's family. As much a son, a daughter, as Jesus is a son of God. And this enemy, he hates all those who are in Jesus. He hates us. He wants to do all he can to drag us into wrongdoing and wrong thinking and wrong, wrong speaking. We can expect this as a matter of course if we are Christians. The master's lot will be the disciple's lot. His enemy is our enemy. The second thing I want to draw out from this is that this saviour knows our battle. He knows your battle. He knows what you are going through. You don't need to be in fear because the Saviour knows what you're going through. What we've just read shows us that he is able to sympathize fully with those who are being tempted. Jesus has been literally, thoroughly tempted himself. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what we read in 1 John chapter 3. That's his mission and it's fitting that it would begin with this special conflict with Satan. He knows what it is to be in the line of fire. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says that Jesus suffered when he was tempted. What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus could have sinned? Could the Son of God have sinned possibly? We don't know. There's several possibilities. Maybe he could have sinned, but thank God he didn't. Maybe he, he, he could not have sinned, but the temptation was still painful for him. The resistance of the temptation was still a struggle for him. Or maybe he couldn't have sinned but didn't know that he couldn't sin. And therefore, really, it was just like it is for us, this temptation. Whatever the weather, we know that he was in an almighty struggle here. He suffered in this time. He suffered in subsequent trials. We see that this enemy came back again to tempt him at an opportune time. He knows. Jesus knows. He's our captain who goes into battle with us. He's not some captain who sends his troops off into the battle and just kind of lets them get on with it. He knows. And the great preacher from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, in his last sermon before he died, he said this to his church. Jesus is the most magnanimous of captains. There was never his like. He's the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there's anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, yes, lavish and super abundant in love, you always find it in him. His service is life, peace and joy. Oh, that you would enter it at once. What a glorious ending to his final sermon after a life of preaching. Jesus is the most magnanimous, most magnificent captain. He's our captain. He knows. He, you might be in the thick of the battle right now. He is right there with you and he knows. And he has been there. It's good when you're struggling with something to talk to someone who really understands, isn't it? 
It's good to know they actually get it. They, they're nodding away, not just because they've been taught to nod, because they actually know, because they actually know what's going on. Jesus knows. He knows what temptation you're going through. He gets it. He understands what makes you tick. He gets you, and he knows. You have a Savior who knows. The third thing I want to pull out is that this enemy is subtle. This account shows us that Satan is a master in the art of temptation. He's a master fisherman who knows how to so bait the hook in order to get the fish interested. Temptation is, is nothing more than a bait on a hook. Satan will come to you as he came to Jesus and he will bait your hook with whatever will be enticing to you. Whether that be overeating, whether that be illicit sex, whether that be fame or money or glory or power, the wrong partner, someone else's partner, security, comfort, whatever it might be. It might even be seemingly positive things like achievements and the praise of others, accolades, great grades at school. Whatever it be, he will bait the hook and his entire goal is to give you whatever will compel you to bite and take the hook so that he can in every way reel, to, reel you towards destruction. And sin causes destruction. It causes all kinds of mess and pain. We've been crab fishing with our children a number of times at Felixstowe. And uh, somehow someone worked out that crabs really like bacon. I don't know how you worked that out because you don't see many crabs taking down pigs in the wild. It doesn't happen much. But somehow it's the sort of thing that just makes you wonder how do they work that out. A bit like how did the person work out that cow's milk was going to taste good? How, how do they even have that thought? I want to just go and try that. How do they work out that crabs are going to like bacon? Who doesn't like bacon? That's a good point. Maybe some vegans here, but you know. But day after day, they, they come back for the same bait. Dangle the line in the water, they grab a hold of it, and before they know it, they're in a bucket being poked by small children. And it happens every day. They are really stupid. They keep coming back. But that's a bit like us. Satan, if, if he came to you and said, I want you to experience divorce, or I want you to experience the mess that comes around in your life through drug addiction, or I want you to experience uh, health problems due to overeating, or I want you to experience the head full of regret following a drunken night out, I want you to experience the, the mess that could be caused by uh, addiction to pornography. I want you to experience the distorted views of yourself and of the opposite sex that you might have as a result. If he came to us and said that, we would say, no, thank you. I'm quite happy, actually. I don't want to go there. But being crafty and clever, the tempter, the deceiver, he finds creative ways to so bait the hook and he chooses just the right time to dangle the line in the water. We note here that Jesus is is tired, he's weak, he's not had much food to eat, and he's isolated. And this is the moment when the devil comes strong with his temptation. On Sunday afternoons, I am tired, especially when I've preached twice. I'm tired because I'll have been up early, just finishing preparation. I'll have been at two services on the go throughout and I'll have given my all in preaching. And in, on Sunday afternoons, I am tired. And I have to teach myself not to trust my thoughts on Sunday afternoon. I have to 
tell myself, Tom, do not even go there with those thoughts. Because we could have had revival break out in the morning. We could have had hundreds of people give their lives to Jesus. We could have had 50 people uh, radically healed, people stepping out of wheelchairs and all sorts of stuff going on. And then come Sunday afternoon, I could be thinking, ah, this church is falling apart. And I'm such a terrible pastor. And that sermon was rubbish. And I think that person hates me. And you can just start to dwell on ridiculous thoughts that are completely irrational. And they're not of God. They're of the evil one. And I have to tell myself, Tom, don't even go there. Don't even entertain these thoughts. And I have to remind myself of the truth. You know what? Even if this church fell apart, God, your kingdom is going to go on expanding. You don't need me. Even if that sermon was rubbish, you're still going to work through it. Even if that person hates me, you love me, Lord, and I'm your son. I've got to remind myself of the truth. Listen, when we are tired, when we're hungry, when we're isolated, we are vulnerable to the devil's schemes. We are very vulnerable, which begs the question, are we in community? Are we running this race with others alongside us? Are we pushing into it at all costs? Or are we saying, well, no one speaks to me and therefore I can't, I'm never going to get to know anyone. Are we pushing in, friends? Are we going for it? Are we getting enough rest? It's a good question as well. Are we staying up late watching ridiculous shows on Netflix until one in the morning and then waking in the morning feeling so tired and the next day our thoughts just so negative? Are we up on our phones until late at night and then we suddenly can't sleep because we've been looking at light for hours? Are we getting the rest that we need? So we know something of the moment that the enemy strikes, but what of his tactics? Well, the first tactic was to try and get Jesus to distrust his father's care and provision. There is nothing wrong with eating bread. There's nothing wrong with eating bread. Even if Jesus felt, I'm going to break this fast right now, I'm going to stop fasting and have some bread. There's nothing wrong with that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. There's no law that says you have to fast for 40 days after your baptism. If there was a law that you had to fast for 40 days after your baptism, I don't think anyone here would have got baptized. There's nothing wrong with making bread miraculously. Jesus did it when he fed the multitudes. There's nothing wrong with it. And Jesus could have reasoned with it and thought, yeah, there's, there's, te- there's nothing technically wrong with, with making this stone into bread right now. Maybe I could do it. But this issue was about trust. He had been led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He was communing with God. He was to trust his Father to supply his needs. Is he suddenly going to now try and force the issue for himself? The devil is even trying to undermine here something of Jesus' identity. He says, if you are the Son of God. Well, 40 days before this, Jesus has, in a very dramatic fashion, had the Holy Spirit come and rest upon him as he gets out of the waters of baptism. And an audible voice has come from heaven saying, you're my son, and I love you, and I'm really pleased with you. And yet the devil will come and try to undermine his identity. The devil will try to undermine your identity. That The most precious thing to you, the most glorious thing about the gospel, is that if you've placed your trust in Jesus, you're now adopted as a son a daughter of the living God. That is the most fundamental thing to you. It's who you are before anything else. And the devil will try and get at that identity. He'll try and get you to doubt it. He'll try and get you to think, well, maybe that time I did go too far. Maybe God has now let go of me. Maybe he has finally had enough of me. He'll try and get at that in some ways. The second tactic, he tries to hold before Jesus glory and power. Now, Jesus has already been promised this by the Father. He's already been promised the nations. And he's being offered something that he already has coming to him, but this is by a different route. 
a route that seems to be much easier. A little momentary act, just a quick bow of the knee in worship to the devil. It could have led to enormous gain. But Jesus knows that the glory and power that was promised to him needed to come via a different route. It needed to come via the way of the cross. That he would need to uh, be so obedient to his father, even to the point of dying a brutal death on the cross. And that after that time of laying his life down for us, that then God would exalt him to the highest place and give him the name that is above every other, that every knee would bow to him and every tongue confess, you are Lord. That's what God had promised Jesus. But the devil is here offering some glory and power to Jesus by a different route. He's offering him a crown without a cross. And again, we see a parallel between the temptation of Jesus and the temptation of Adam. Both had to choose between obedience to God and the devil's alternative pathway to glory. For Adam, obedience to God would lead to significant blessing. But for Jesus, obedience to God would lead first to suffering before incredible glory. And in denying the devil, he's once more committing himself. He's committing himself to the path of glory that goes via the cross. Sometimes this hook is baited with mistrust. Sometimes it's baited with promises of great glory and power via the wrong route. And sometimes it's baited even with religion itself. The devil seems to have got the idea that Jesus knows his scriptures. And he's thinking, okay, this is the way we're going to play this game. Let's try this. And he starts to misquote scripture to Jesus. He starts to take scriptures out of context and misquote them to him. So often the lies of the enemy sound plausible. If they were really obviously lies, we wouldn't go there. We wouldn't believe them. He won't come with something very obvious. He's subtle. And if we don't know the truth of God's word, if we don't know, if we don't regularly remind ourselves of it, then we will get sucked into believing things that aren't true. Because there could be some things that come to us, as I've already said, of things, thoughts of, yeah, well, God is holy, and maybe that sin that I committed means that I can't now come into his presence and I can't get forgiveness because he's holy. Well, that's one truth, absolutely. But the truth is that now in Christ, we've been wrapped up in him. We can come boldly before the Father. We can receive mercy and forgiveness at our time of need. We need the whole truth, not just part of the truth. We need the whole truth. And so even sometimes truths which sound plausible, they're not the whole truth. This would be a bad news sermon if it wasn't for the fact that this hero of ours resisted. To be told that we're going to face the enemy because we're in Christ, that's bad news. But because he resisted, it's good news. This saviour resisted for you. You will not resist every day and in every way. You will fail. You will fail. And that's precisely why Jesus was sent. To those who fail the tests that are put before us. He came in order to make a way for us to be forgiven. He fully endured the test. We see in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He has been tempted in every way, under trial, and he remained pure. And at the end of his perfect life, having obeyed God completely, he was killed in the most brutal of fashions with his hands and feet smashed to a cross of wood with a crown of thorns rammed into his head with people spitting at him and mocking him and jeering at him. 
And at any moment, he could have called upon those angels that the devil referred to. At any moment, he could have called upon them and they would have taken those nails out of his hands and rammed them into the soldier's hands and Jesus could have been free. But like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, Jesus didn't open his mouth. He went there for you and I. He died on the cross for us. He went there for us. The resistance of the devil here in the desert and at other times meant that that death on the cross was not just some martyrdom. It wasn't just some tragic martyr dying on a cross. His perfect life means that on the cross, he was a perfect sacrifice. He was a substitute for us. He was in our place. We deserved it. We deserved to go to the cross for our rebellion against God and the evil things we do and say and think. We deserve to be there. And yet, Jesus went in our place. He's our substitute. This resistance meant that this life of perfection could be ended in place of our life of rebellion and would give us redemption. We can look at this passage and we can kind of get into it and think, well, here's some strategies for resisting temptation. Great, absolutely. We're going to come on to that in a moment. And we can think Jesus is a great example for us. Yes and amen to that. He's a glorious example for us. But we need to know that he's not just our example. He was there as our saviour. He was there in the desert as our saviour, resisting for us, resisting temptation on our behalf. He is the new Adam who never took the bait. He's the true Israel who never bowed to other gods. He's the one whose victory now becomes our victory. His victory in the desert becomes our victory, even though we fail because it gets credited to us when we place our faith in Jesus. It's like we've lived the life he's lived. That's amazing. That's mind-blowing. That's the truth of the gospel. He's our example, yes, but he's more than our example. He's our substitute. He's our rescuer. And it's in light of what he's done for us in this new freedom that he's won for us where we don't have to go there anymore. You are, you are no longer slaves to sin. In Christ, you don't have to go there anymore. You can say, I count myself dead to this. I don't have to. The old me, I had no choice. I couldn't resist. But now in Christ, I'm free. And in this new freedom, we can now resist. And we resist as Jesus resisted. He resisted through prayer, through the word of God, and for the joy that was set before him. Jesus defeated Satan in this battle, partly because of his prayerfulness. He's just been communing with God for 40 days. He's full of confidence in God. You'll understand what I mean by that if you spend time with God. If you spend time with God, you'll understand what I mean when I say he's full of confidence in God. The horizon of his mind is filled with God. And he's confident. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not fearful I'm not full of anxiety. I'm not looking to the left or to the right because my mind is filled with God. He's communed with God. He's about to start this public ministry and he's giving himself to a time of prayer and fasting. Fasting is not some way of getting God to be impressed with us. As if God would suddenly look at us after fasting and think, wow, you're much better than I thought you were. Jesus has impressed the Father on our behalf. God's not going to think, wow, you are so amazing. But fasting is a way of saying, God, I'm going to get a hold of you. I want to push aside all distractions. I want to go after you in commitment and in prayer fervently. Most of us wouldn't manage 40 hours. Many of us would not last 40 minutes. 
Jesus goes for 40 days. And so he has this confidence in God because he's been praying a lot. He's got God filling the horizon of his mind. So he resists through his prayerfulness. He resists with the word of God. He has a clear mind and a firm will because of his dependence on God's written word. He didn't need to have a long discussion with Satan. He didn't need to entertain for a moment whether or not Satan's ideas were good ones. He said, it is written. He knows the answer straight away to these temptations. All of these quotations are from the book of Deuteronomy, which seems to be the place where Jesus had been studying at that point. It seemed to be the place that he was particularly just uh, camping out in. Maybe during his time, maybe he had a scroll with him as he was walking through the desert. Maybe just before he got baptized, maybe he had to read the book of Deuteronomy. We don't know. But he's, he's full of the word of God. And he didn't even have half of it that we have. <laughs> he didn't have the New Testament, which is full of glorious truth. And yet he's coming to the word of God. And it's from the word of God. He's saying, it is written. I'm going to do battle with this sword of the spirit in my hand. So when Satan seeks to ruin us, our ability to stand depends on our past prayerfulness, our confidence in God as a result of that prayerfulness, and our commitment to God's word. Let's be in prayer Let's be in his word. Let's be well acquainted with this book so that when the enemy comes with his temptation, we say, I'm not going to go there. That's foolish. I'm not going to go there. Finally, Jesus resisted because of the joy set before him. He endured the cross even because of the joy set before him. What's that joy? What's that reward? It was you, ugly lot, before me and millions and billions of others that he would spend eternity with. That's the joy set before Jesus as he went to the cross. That's the joy set before Jesus as he resisted the devil in the wilderness. The reward for his sufferings. The well done of the Father. The applause of heaven. He had this in mind as he faced the enemy. There was a prize ahead. And that's to be our motivation too. We know that Jesus had at least four brothers and at least a couple of sisters. We read in the book of Luke. And one of his brothers is called James. He's the next oldest in Joseph and Mary's family. And James not only is a brother of Jesus, he then becomes the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The very first church he gets to lead it. And he gets a book in the Bible. I mean, he had a pretty good deal. And he's able to uphold that Jesus is without sin. Now, who here has a brother or sister? Now, if you claim to be without sin, who would be the first person to shoot that claim down? It would be your brother or sister because they know the very best of you and they know the very worst of you. I have a brother also called James. If I claim to be without sin, he would be there in a shot within 10 seconds and listing 15 terrible things that I did as a child. Jesus grew up with James. James saw throughout Jesus' childhood, Jesus devotion to God. He saw in his teenage years Jesus' resistance of temptation. They would have done everything together. They would have learned carpentry from their father. They probably would have shared a bunk bed. They did everything together. And James sees Jesus' devotion to God. And he writes in his letter about temptation. He says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He saw, even in Jesus' life, some motivation for the joy that was set before him. Some motivation of this reward that was coming to him. I remember as a child, 
playing for my local football team, Aylsham Wanderers. I remember as a child longing for us to receive a trophy. I remember over the course of the season, us longing to win the league. And yet, most games we got beaten 17-0 and all the kind of ridiculous scores you have when you're playing as a child. And even though we didn't win any trophies as a team, there was an end-of-season award ceremony where we all dreamt of receiving the Player of the Year award. The Player's Player of the Year award voted by the players or the Manager's Player of the Year award voted by the manager or maybe the Most Improved Player of the Year award. That was what we dreamt of. That's what we hoped to achieve come the end of the season. And listen, I won this trophy three years in a row. But let me tell you something it's actually the Clubman of the Year trophy, which is awarded to the person who attends training the most. <laughs> and my children look at my trophy cabinet and they basically think I'm Cristiano Ronaldo, but I just essentially had very organized parents who got me to training. <laughs> but listen, this was something for me at the end of the season. I was like, wow, this is going on the mantelpiece. This is my reward for my hard work. And we preach grace in this church. We love the doctrine of the grace of God. We love this truth that you cannot earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you. That it's totally by faith in Jesus and his work alone that we are saved. We love that. We love that truth. And yet the Bible speaks on a number of occasions about reward. So we can't earn our salvation. We can't make God love us any more or less than he does. He has wrapped us up in Jesus. We're in Christ. And yet, there's a motivation for us of reward. I don't know what it's going to look like, but we see here something of a crown of life. We see here something that God's going to reward us when we stand firm under trial. He's going to reward us, and he wants us to have that in our minds when we come under fierce temptation. That we battle, yes, through being prayerful in the Word, but we have a joy set before us, the well done of the Father, that we know as we come back home, God's going to say, well done, you withstood under fire. Let's look to Jesus, our example, who resisted through living a prayerful life, who knew his Bible, who looked ahead to the reward of his suffering. As we do that, we can know little victories now. We can resist the devil, and he will flee from us for a time. But we will fail. All of us will fail. And in that time, we need to look to Jesus, our substitute. We need to, look, need to look to Jesus who bled and died for those who failed the test, which is all of us. And we glory in the fact that it's his righteousness that saves us, not our own. I want us to finish as we usually do by singing together, by glorying in Jesus together. But before we do that, I want us to say the Lord's Prayer together. Now, I've, I've changed the words slightly because I know that a bunch of you could recite the Lord's Prayer off by heart and you wouldn't even really think about the words. So I've rewritten things. I wonder if you could stand with me. We're going to read this together. Those who, who know you love God, you're a Christian, let's pray this together. Father God, we love you. Your name is holy, glorious. Let your kingdom come here just like it is in heaven. Give us all we need each day. Forgive us for our sins as we forgive those who wrong us. And lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from wrongdoing, wrong thinking, and wrong speaking. It's your kingdom, your glorious and all-powerful Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content 
please do not edit the content in any way.